Good evening, this is Doug Taylor. Welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, August 8th, and we are starting with Proverbs chapter 14, verse 33. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 33, and the verse reads, In the heart of the Navon there rests wisdom, and among the fools it will be known. And Rabbi Moskowitz indicated a Navon is a deep thinker. So, again, it would read, In the heart of the deep thinker there rests wisdom, and among the fools it will be known. Now, as we've covered in past classes, the first thing we want to do is ask ourselves, as we look at that verse, what are the questions that we want to ask around that? Uh, questions that would lead us to an understanding of what King Solomon is trying to get across to us. Anything that isn't clear, anything we need to define, um, anything that seems out of place or doesn't make immediate sense to us, we want to first get all those questions down on the table. And that's part of the process of working with and understanding and analyzing uh, a proverb or just about any situation that you might find in life is to first ask yourself, what are the questions? So I'll put that back on you. What are the questions here? In the heart of a deep thinker, there rests wisdom, and among the fools, it will be known. Okay, and Jim, you've asked, what is the it that will be known? Very good. What's the it? Um, and isn't it obvious that a deep thinker will have wisdom in his heart? Absolutely. Seems kind of straightforward. So what's, as you say, why is King Solomon bringing all this up? He's not going to tell us something that we obviously know. Uh, so if it's really, really simple and straightforward, then we've got to ask ourselves, okay, is there something uh, deeper here? Okay, and Charles, you've asked the question, uh, uh, will it be known, uh, will be known to whom? Yeah, among the fools it will be known. To whom? Uh, Linda, good question. What's a fool? Yeah, we use that term all the time, but what does that mean? Um, and when it says in the heart of the Navon, uh, there rests wisdom, Jim, you're asking, what does rests mean then? How does, how does that rest? Excellent questions. Excellent questions. And I might add one more. What does the first half have to do with the second half? Because generally speaking, most of the Proverbs that we're dealing with, although not every one, there's the first half and the second half, and there's some kind of a contrast between the first half and the second half. Often, you know, uh, the righteous versus the wicked, or good versus evil, or something along that line. So let's start at the beginning. It says, in the heart of the deep thinker there rests wisdom. And we've discussed this before, that when this book was written, the term heart uh, often meant the mind. It's a little different terminology the way we use the term heart now, uh, because we're generally, I think, in today's parlance, talking about emotions. But when this was written, it was talking about the mind. So it's saying, in the mind of the deep thinker, wisdom stays there. It rests. In other words, he doesn't give it out uh, because of humility. Uh, in other words, he doesn't want to show people how wise he is and say, look, you know, I've got a lot of wisdom. Let me tell you about all the cool wisdom that I have. But the, the deep thinker is 
a humble person. And so he's not about showing people how wise he is. So his wisdom rests there in his mind. It stays there. He doesn't necessarily share it all. A wise man doesn't reveal everything he knows because his wisdom is not an ego trip for him. Okay? He holds his knowledge and he only reveals it when it will be useful and beneficial to other people. So he's not about kind of showing off. He's about bringing out that wisdom at a time when it's appropriate, when it will be useful and helpful to someone else. The sages give a metaphor. If you have a bottle full of coins, you don't hear it. If you have a bottle with one coin, you hear it. And I'll suggest that the wise man is like a bottle full of coins. You don't hear his wisdom. He's got lots of it, enough of it that he holds it inside. The bottle with one coin is like a fool. You hear him because he makes a lot of noise about that one thing that he does know. Okay? So that's about the first, first half. The heart of the, the deep thinker, there rests wisdom. It rests there. It stays there. Now, the second half of the verse reads, Among the fools it will be known. And Rabbi Moskowitz indicated that the meaning is, Among the fools, the Navon's knowledge will be known. The deep thinker's knowledge will be known. How does that work? Does it mean the specific ideas? Or is it the fact that he has ideas? And we'll take the second approach. In other words, the fact that he is a deep thinker will be known by the fools. So how, is, how does that work? How is it known among the fools that a person is a Navon, a deep thinker? The answer is that there are certain people who, when they're by themselves, they act intelligently. When you put them in a group, they act foolishly. Okay, so there certain people are, they have a certain level of intelligence. So if they're by themselves, they'll act intelligently. But when you put them in a group, they'll act foolishly. But the Navon, the deep thinker, always acts intelligently. So even in a group of fools, he'll act wisely. And that will be seen by the fools around him. And they will recognize that. Okay, it's, it's a rule of life that often people act like others when they're around them. You know, we get influenced by the people who are around us. But the person of intelligence, the deep thinker, the one who has, in whom rests wisdom, that person always acts with intelligence. And that can be seen by other people. You know, we recognize it when we're around someone who's acting intelligently. So the verse is talking about a deep thinker and how he deals with wisdom and how that wisdom is perceived by fools. Okay, uh, Linda, you've uh, mentioned uh, he's very discerning in what he passes on. Yes, absolutely. The deep thinker will be very careful about what he 
uh, passes on to another person and very discerning about that because he may have or she may have ideas that wouldn't be appropriate for another person uh, to hear. They might not be ready for the idea. In fact, hearing that idea might be very detrimental to them. So a, a deep thinker is really careful about what they will share uh, because, again, they'll only share things uh, that are you know, appropriate for the person. Um, Jim, you've asked, could it also mean that uh, the wisdom known by fools is known because they make much noise about it with their single coin? Uh, thus, the first half of the verse contrasts the second. Um, that's an interesting interpretation. Uh, let me just think about that for a minute. So I've got my one coin and yes, I, th I think it could. I don't see any contradiction there in that interpretation. So just to explain, to make sure it's clear to everyone and those listening to the recording. So Jim is suggesting that the second half, when it says, and among the fools it will be known, the it is the, the sort of the single coin, the little bit that they know because they make such a big deal, such a big noise about whatever they know that it is, uh, it is clearly known. Whereas by contrast, the deep thinker, he holds his knowledge within him and doesn't necessarily share it. He's not, he's not leading with it. They're like, hey, look what I know. Uh, but that's what the fool's doing. Uh, and that, yeah, I think I don't see any contradiction uh, or problem with that also being a legitimate uh, uh, interpretation. The fool, as we've talked about in pre previous classes, tends to blurt out what he knows, you know, and just throw it right out there sometimes without thinking. So that, I think, could, uh, uh, could also be a, a valid interpretation. Good point, Jim. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Any questions on this verse? Okay, in that case, thank you. Let's move on to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 34. And the verse reads, Charity raises a nation, and kindness to the nations is a sin. Charity raises a nation, and kindness to the nations is a sin. Now there's a verse that just begs some questions. And what do you think the questions might be? Okay, Charles, good. What's the difference between charity and kindness? So we've got two halves of the verse, and one's talking about charity, and one's talking about kindness. So what's the difference between those? Good. Luis, uh, your version says righteousness. I would assume that would be in the first half, uh, but different translators will translate uh, the verses with slightly different words. So, um, yeah, we might run into a, a difference there. Um, Janine, you've pointed out, seems to be a contradiction. Yes, it does, doesn't it? It's like well, why, if charity is good for a nation, why would it be bad to do kindness to the nations? And when we see a contradiction like that, it's very good that you brought that up, um, that means we have to look at how we define uh, the verse. Uh, 
because King Solomon is obviously trying to get us to see that there's something else there and we're going to have to uh, uh, extrapolate from that or abstract out from that a definition that makes sense because obviously if he's putting a very clear contradiction in front of us, then he must mean something different than the way we might immediately read it. Um, okay, and yes, what's the difference between kindness and charity? Uh, and Jim, is there a difference here between nation and kingdoms? Ah, yes. Why is the first singular? Very good question. Very good question. You'll notice it says charity raises a nation, singular, and kindness to the nations, plural, is a sin. Okay, good. I would also add to those, how does charity raise a nation? In the first half, you know, it says charity raises a nation. Well, how does that work and what does that mean? And what does it mean to have kindness to the nations? And why is that considered a sin? So, most of the commentaries say that the first occurrence of nation, Jim, as you pointed out and as our translation indicates, the first occurrence of nation is singular, and the second is plural. And so they say that the first is referring to Israel, and the second is referring to the other nations. Okay? Now, that's a possibility. Alternatively, maybe the distinction between the two halves is between charity and kindness. But Rabbi Moskowitz has suggested that you need to go with only one distinction when analyzing a proverb. Okay, if we get into multiple distinctions, then, you know, there are so many different possibilities that uh, it gets extremely complicated. So we need to stay with one. And let's stay with the approach of most of the commentaries. That the difference between the first half and the second half is focused around the difference between nation and nations, first half talking about Israel, the second half talking about uh, the other nations. Now, the verse, uh, when it says charity raises a nation, the verse means, and it says charity raises a nation and kindness to the nation sins. It, it means when they do charity or they do kindness. So we could read it as charity raises a nation when they do charity. And it is a sin when they do kindness to the nations. So it's talking about when a nation does one of those actions, does charity or does kindness. And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to, uh, or said, it's not that there is something inherent in the Jewish nation. Okay, It's the education. The education teaches them what kindness is. So it talks about kindness to the nations is a sin. Well, what is kindness? And he raised the question, what's the difference between kindness and between being sweet and lovable? So human beings naturally make qualitative distinctions. For example, uh, I'll be sweet and kind to this person. But in this process, we have to learn to make quantitative decisions. So let's take a teacher. A teacher may not necessarily get involved um, with the student, but the teacher will teach the students 
how to break down a subject into small enough components until they can see it clearly. But let's suppose that the teacher sees that a student can't do a certain kind of work. Then the teacher needs to take that student's needs into consideration. If the teacher is too easy on him, the teacher will hurt him. If the teacher is too hard on the student, the teacher will hurt him. So the teacher has to learn to determine what the person can and can't do and give them the exact amount that they can or can't do. In other words, they have to know the student well enough and work closely enough the student to make that determination. That's kindness. That's true kindness. It's not about being sweet or nice or lovable. It's about understanding the needs of the other person so well that you can carefully craft how to help them in the way that is going to be best for them. So it's about seeing and acting in accordance with that broad reality. That's kindness. Okay? So before we go on, is that idea clear? Yes, Linda, you're quite right. Being too kind, you can get walked all over. In other words, you know, in the case of the student, if I make it too easy for the student, that is not good for the student, and the student will take advantage of that. If I make it too hard for the student, I will frustrate the student, and they'll just give up. So I have to know the student. I have to know the other person, and I'm using the, the teacher thing as, a, as a, uh, an analogy or an example, but I have to know the other person enough to know what is the right amount of what I'm going to give them uh, in order to um, really help them where they are. If you're a parent and you have multiple children, every child is different. And so if one may, you may have to discipline them in a much stronger way in order for them to get it than another child who's perhaps very, very sensitive and only takes just, you know, almost a hint of a suggestion and they'll change their behavior. And if you were to discipline the sensitive one, in the same way that you discipline the tough one, uh, you could break them. So this is what kindness is about. Um, that you have to be, uh, you know, you have to have an insight and an understanding. This is where it was talking about, when we talked about earlier, you have to be able to make quantitative decisions. How much of something is the right amount for a given person in a given situation? So, the verse is talking about developing a nation to that level. When a nation does charity, they're acting in accordance with that broad reality view. They're seeing a view that is beyond themselves. They're not self-focused, but they're seeing the needs of those who need the help of charity. And that outlook raises a nation. It's, it's seeing that level of kindness that we just discussed. That raises the nation to a higher level. By contrast, kindness to the nations, okay, is like helping an old lady across the street. They're not trained in how to work it out with chachma, with wisdom. Sweet and lovable is helping an old lady across the street. 
Kindness can actually be the wrong thing to do, can be a sinful thing in certain circumstances. For example, being kind to a murderer uh, and thinking, oh, well, you know, I really don't want to testify against him because, gee, you know, they might put him away in prison and it would be a nice thing to be nice to him. No, it wouldn't be a nice thing to be nice to him. It would be the wrong thing, uh, generally, to be uh, nice to him. Uh, because if you do, then he could go out and murder someone else. Uh, so kindness to the nations is a, is a sin. In other words, from the standpoint of the nations and the way they look at kindness, kindness is a sin because they don't think it through with wisdom. They just do what emotionally feels good, uh, and... Uh, that can lead to making all kinds of mistakes, which can have all kinds of negative consequences. So you have to operate with wisdom with regard to kindness and whether something is actually going to be beneficial to a person or whether it's going to hurt them. Okay, any questions on this verse? Uh, we'll move on to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 35. 14.35, and the verse reads, It is the will of the king for an intelligent slave, and his anger will be to a shameful one. It is the will of the king for an intelligent slave, and his anger will be to a shameful one. So as we've done in our past classes or past verses, the first question we'll ask is, what are the questions? What's unclear? What needs definition? What do we need to ask in order to understand what King Solomon is trying to get across to us in this verse? It is the will of the king for an intelligent slave, and his anger will be to a shameful one. What do you think? Okay, Jim, how does shameful contrast to intelligent? Good. So if, if we've got in the first half, it is the will of the king for an intelligent slave, and his anger will be to a shameful one, there seems to be a contrast going on between an intelligent slave and a shameful one. What is that contrast? Good. Here are a couple of possibilities. Why does a king want an intelligent slave? That seems real clear, but sometimes uh, the obvious questions uh, aren't so clear if we dig around a little bit. And why will the king be angry with a shameful one? And wouldn't this be true with just about anyone? I mean, why is King Solomon saying this specifically about kings, and isn't it pretty obvious? So what is it that he's getting at here? Okay, and Janine, you mentioned it affects the quality of service. Yes? Okay, good. Let's hold that thought. So Rabbi Moskowitz said like this. He said, shameful doesn't mean that he does a shameful thing, but that he has a certain shame that he thinks the thing, whatever the thing is, is beneath his dignity. In other words, uh, the shameful person thinks that whatever he was asked to do is beneath his dignity. But again, this seems a little bit obvious, and 
Why a slave? Because it seems like this would apply to almost everyone. <laughs> and Jimmy said maybe he was sending a message to his servants. Could be. Could very well be. Oh. So Rabbi Moskowitz uh, referred us to the last part of Proverbs, which is about the Aishas Heil, the woman of valor. It's the last chapter in the book of Proverbs. And he was reading it and noticed how practical everything is. If you look at the story of the, the woman of valor in the last chapter of Proverbs and the description about her and what she does, it's all very practical stuff. There are two statements of kindness thrown in, in the middle of all this person's practical stuff, verses 20 and 26. Now, Proverbs is a very practical book. It's all about how to live in the laws of nature. So for the woman of valor, or more generally, for any person who lives the life of Mishle, the life of, of Proverbs, Kindness is a very practical thing. Okay? This is not like Maimonides, who, who near the end of his life devoted all his energies uh, really to uh, helping the Jewish community. He, I mean, he essentially gave up his life uh, for kindness. Uh, he was spending all of his time working, uh, or virtually all of it, on behalf of the Jewish people. Uh, and in fact, I understand that someone... Uh, wanted to do a translation of uh, his book, The Guide for the Perplexed, and sent him a letter and asked if he could, uh, you know, come over and talk to him about it. And Maimonides sent him back a message that says, you know, I'm just so busy, I only have a little bit of time to learn on Shabbos. Uh, it's a very high level of kindness because, I mean, Maimonides was a man of, of ideas and of the abstract, uh, yet he was devoting his time uh, to the Jewish people. So that's a different kind of kindness. The kind of kindness that we're talking about here is a certain type of practicality. It's that when I have to do for others, it's not an ego thing, which is why people sometimes do kindness. It's practical, uh, like the, the woman of valor, uh, a very practical notion. So uh, the, the kindness we're talking about is very practical. Kindness helps you give up your attachment to the physical world. Um, sometimes the physical world forces us to deal with our emotions. But doing acts of kindness can also force you to deal with your emotions. Uh, and the book of, of Proverbs is very practical and keeps giving us details. I mean, King Solomon is basically working out every detail, going over and over different cases and looking at things from different standpoints. Uh, so that we get it all. So, in the simple terms of the verse, the king wants to have slaves around who operate at this level of kindness. They're completely practical. They aren't involved in helping the king for political reasons or emotional reasons. They're there because they're helping him because they see the practical. And a king who is surrounded by slaves like this can have a certain level of trust because he knows that the slaves will act practically on behalf of the kingdom. The king doesn't have to worry about them, so he can sleep easier and breathe easier because he's got a bunch of very clear heads 
that are you know doing stuff for them, and he knows they will act practically uh, with uh, with wisdom. By contrast, the king will become angry with a shameful slave, one who doesn't act in accordance with practicality, but who operates according to his emotions. Why? Because the king has certain expectations of his slaves, and a slave who acts shamefully will not meet those expectations. I mean, which one of us would want a subordinate, uh, say we were running a business? Which one of us would want an employee who acts shamefully? I mean, it reflects on us as the business owner. So the king's anger will be to a shameful slave, uh, one who acts shamefully, one who thinks that whatever he's asked to do is beneath his dignity, he's got his ego hanging out there. That's not the kind of person the king wants around him. The king wants around him people who check their ego at the door and understand they're there to do a job and they're doing it for a very practical reason and the king can trust them to do that. Now, when you look at the book of Proverbs and you look at it in this way, you could ask, well, then what does all this have to do with God and religion? I mean, it's just dealing with practicality. Uh, Psalms, that's, you know, you read that, there's a lot about God and Psalms. Proverbs just seems kind of so irreligious. I mean, it's all practical stuff. Um, for example, you know, fear of God and fear of heaven means just fear of consequences. It seems like this takes away all the religiosity and that after a while, if you're really following this way of life, you're just living a practical life, you know, like the woman of valor. And Rabbi Moskowitz said the answer is that the practical life is the religious life. If you don't learn the life of Proverbs, the life of Mishlei, you'll become haughty and proud. When you learn Mishlei and all these ideas that we're going through, it makes you look down on yourself. You're forced to look at every one of your emotions. You're forced to look at the truth about yourself. And, and when you go further, it's a certain development. It's not the religious emotion driving you. So when you see this idea, when you see how this is developed, you have to say that the Torah was written by God because no religious person would write a book like that. It's all very practical. The whole of living a practical life from a Torah standpoint, is living a religious life. If you start learning, say, Psalms too early, and you think that God is personally relating to you, that's dangerous. Uh, most people start out with religion because they want that security. The Mishlei approach, the Proverbs approach, is not that. Okay, and that's why, uh, if you recall in the book of Job, uh, uh, the, the one guy, there's one guy who admits that he doesn't know the answer to the question, and he says he's closer to God because he admits he doesn't know rather than the other guy who gave an answer that wasn't true. In other words, he's being very practical, he's being very honest, he's being very transparent about the situation. So 
we understanding uh, the, the understanding of God is about an understanding of truth. It's not something to satisfy our emotional religiosity. It's all about the practical life and seeing the truth. And part of that is seeing our own emotions and our own emotional hangups and our own baggage that we carry around that influences our viewpoint and seeing, you know, how our our uh, view of things gets slanted by our you know, emotions as they come and go and so forth and recognizing, yeah, that's me and I'm working to understand it and by going through these cases uh, we hopefully move ourselves towards the type of life described in the last chapter of Proverbs which is a very, very practical life. Okay, let me pause there and ask if there are any questions about that. Um, and Linda, you've said this is how we should relate to Hashem and to His creation that we live here. Yes, this is how we relate to God, by relating to the world in a very practical way, recognizing the systems that we live in, uh, and learning to live within those systems and understanding those systems. Uh, uh, and yeah, Jim, reminiscent of Socrates, who was considered wise because he knew he wasn't. Uh, it's, it's a very wise thing when you recognize what you don't know. Uh, and Sometimes that's hard for us to look at and hard for us to recognize how much we don't know. Uh, but that really helps move us in the direction of, you know, where we really are, not trying to jump ahead, not trying to pretend that we're at a level that we're not, not trying to skip steps, but just recognizing this is who I am, this is where I am now, uh, and I'll work from here and do the best I can uh, with what I have. Okay, any other questions or comments? This is a fundamental idea of the book of Proverbs uh, and uh, very important and a driver of why we study this and why it's so important for us to study it. Okay, we'll move on then to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1. This is one I think that has become somewhat famous over the years. A soft answer turns anger and a galling word raises wrath. A soft answer turns anger, and a galling word raises wrath. So what do you think the questions are around that? Okay, Janine, how do our actions affect the emotions and responses and reactions of others? Very good question. Very good question. And I think this verse is going to get to uh, a specific answer around that. So I might start out in addition to Janine's question and ask, what is a soft answer? When it says a soft answer turns anger, what do we mean by a soft answer? And how does it actually turn away anger or wrath? And how does a galling word raise wrath? I mean, we could perhaps see an angry word raising it, but a, but a galling word, what, what is that about? So, the verse is talking about answering someone who is talking at you angrily. So, we see that the first phrase, uh, the, the result, is that it turns anger. And the second phrase result is, raises wrath. So we got a contrast there. Something we do in the first part 
turns anger, something to do in the second part, raises wrath. Now, galling means that you're answering in such a way that it would raise the anger. In other words, we're taking that right from the verse. A galling word raises wrath. It's something that's happening that you're doing that is raising wrath in another person. So let's talk about for a minute what causes anger. Okay? And let me pause and ask for, for your thoughts on that. What causes anger? What do you think? We feel it, some of us often. Uh, it's, an, it's a common emotion. We encounter it in other people. Uh, what causes that? Okay, Charles, when things happen that we were not expecting. Okay, good, that can cause anger. Uh, in some situations, uh, if, if I get some really good result that I like, I might not get angry even though I didn't expect it. But when things happen that I wasn't expecting that I don't want, then yes, absolutely. I get to the airport and uh, the flight's canceled. Uh, so I'm angry. Or the guy cuts in front of me on the freeway that I didn't expect. Um, Jim, you've said an idea that the world should conform to our desires. Yes, isn't the world supposed to conform to my desires? I mean, after all, things should go my way. Uh, Linda, you've mentioned miscommunication. That can cause anger. Uh, and Janine, inconsideration, because we didn't expect either one of those. Uh, the miscommunication, uh, I think someone said something that they didn't, and that wasn't what I expected, or it... I thought it was something that, you know, really flipped my hot button, uh, that might, uh, I might jump to an angry place. If someone's inconsiderate to me or doesn't give me the consideration that I think they should, which gets up to Jim's idea that the world should conform to my desires. I have a certain level of expectation about consideration, and if they didn't treat me that way, then, you know, I feel, uh, I may feel angry. Um, and Jimmy, you've said, not yours so much as mine. So an idea that the world should conform to my desires? Just want to make sure I understand what you're getting at. Ah, ah, yes, thank you. So I think the world should conform to my desires, not yours. That's right. Uh, you know, as if it comes down to that, <laughs> I know it's a good joke, actually. I like it. It, you know, if it comes down to it, if it's my desires or your desires, which one should the world conform to, you know? My side of the fence, because after all, you know, I, the world is supposed to revolve around me, isn't it? So, I would suggest, as, as uh, Jim has pointed out, a number of you have alluded to, anger is caused when, for some reason, the physical world does not fit into my desires or your desires. And it's a resistance to reality. We want something, we don't get it, and we are angry as a result. Okay, Whether it's consideration, whether it's a certain physical event, something someone should have said, uh, you should have known it was you know, our anniversary, uh, you should have thought that I would want this for my birthday, uh, the guy should have known that I wanted that parking space. The airline should have known I was going to be late and should have held the plane. Da, 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 da. I want something. I didn't get it. I'm angry as a result. 
Importantly, it is not the outside thing or the result that is making me angry. It's the story that I'm telling myself about the situation that's making me angry. If I just accepted reality, I wouldn't be angry. This is a very important point if you can, if you can get this and it uh, can require a lot of review to sink in, but it is the story that we're telling ourselves about the situation that is making us angry. It is not the situation itself. Uh, I think I mentioned on a previous class, I first heard this idea from Jack Canfield, uh, the co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. You know, it's not what the other person says to you that is upsetting you. It is what you're telling yourself after they stop talking that is upsetting you. So, for example, if I go to the airport and my flight is canceled, I could get angry because I'm not going to make it to my destination the way I planned. And I could get all riled and I could, you know, unload on the, the ticket agent. And you know what? The reality is the flight's canceled. And no matter how much I pound my fist at the ticket counter, the airline is not going to say, oh, well, since it's you, Mr. Taylor, uh, we'll, we'll reschedule the flight. They're not going to do that. On the other hand, I could simply accept that when I fly, I am at the mercy of many factors outside of my control. The minute I step through the doors of that airport and my next step when they cancel the flight is to figure out, okay, what alternatives are available to me? So if I just ask myself, all right, what's my next step? And then I take that step, that would be that. Because I'm not resisting reality. I already recognize there's only a possibility this flight's going to go. And if it doesn't, then I'll go do this or this. So if I have no resistance to reality, I'm not going to have any anger with it. Because I'm not putting out an expectation that the world should be different than it is. Now, in the first half of the verse, a soft answer means that I answer not angrily. The verse isn't telling me what to say. It's telling us to say whatever we're going to say as if we are not angry. So, how does responding softly affect the person who's angry? So think about this. When a person who is angry is screaming at you, what does he or she expect to happen? A galling word means that I am saying something contrary to what the person wants to hear. So to them, it's harsh or it's distressing. And sometimes a lot of the issue here can be how you say what you say as opposed to what you say. What you say can be important, but how you say it is critical. So why does answering harshly raise the other person's anger? Well, when you're angry, you're looking at the situation in an irrational way. So when the other side attacks you, it's your ego that is attacked. And you want to change that reality. So their answer causes you to raise your anger up to the wrath level. You're having an ego response 
to that person. If you're really angry and they say, you don't have anything to be angry about, all that does probably is make you angrier because your ego has been basically tweaked. Now, Rabbi Moscow has suggested that with wrath, the possibility of rationality is gone. Because you'll notice that there are two different words used in the verse. Anger in the first half and wrath in the second half. And he's suggesting that with anger, if you're angry, there is still a possibility of seeing rationality. So he views wrath and anger as slightly different. So importantly, then, we need to recognize how to deal with an angry person so it doesn't escalate up to wrath. And responding gently and softly to them generally presents the best opportunity to diffuse the situation. That turns away anger. They have, in essence, nothing to push against. Because when you respond... Um, with a harsh or a galling word to them, that just ups the, ups the amperage, so to speak. And then they get even angrier, you respond more defensively, and back and forth. One of the things that, that, if you ever get a chance to try it, get a group of people together and ask them to stand facing each other and hold out a palm facing each other and press their palms together. And then ask one side to start pushing their palm against the other one's palm and to push harder and harder and harder. And what will happen is most of the people on the other side will automatically start pushing back. Even though they have not been told to push, they will resist. Because when a person is pushed, it is, seems like it is their natural reaction to push back. And so if you have an angry person, it's like someone pushing at you. And if you push back, they push harder, and then you push harder, and they push harder, and pretty soon the situation escalates up to wrath. Whereas if they started pushing against you, and all you did was just let them push your hand out of the way, it's very hard for them to keep pushing because there's nothing to push against. So this is a very helpful way to deal with an angry person. A soft answer, an answer that is uh, gentle, helps to turn that anger away. By contrast, when we respond harshly or in some manner that feels to the other person like an attack, then we potentially increase their anger up to the wrath level, which will usually make the situation worse, and it's that much harder to sort of talk the person down or help them down from that wrath level. So that galling word tends to raise their wrath level. Okay, any questions about this verse? And Linda, you said they have to stop and listen because they're not expecting that kind of reaction. I'm assuming, the, yes, that you're talking about the, uh, the soft answer. It it's, can be a, a, a surprise to someone when, when you're really, really angry at them and then they respond in the nicest possible way to you it really can diffuse your anger because you're not expecting that. You kind of want somebody to like fight against you because you got a lot of energy and you really want to let it loose. But when they just respond very quietly and kindly and say, Mr. Taylor, I'm so very sorry this flight was canceled. 
how can I help you to get to your destination? It's pretty hard for me to remain angry at someone who is trying to be so soft and kind and helpful. Okay? Good. Omar, thank you. Glad, glad that was helpful. This is a very, uh, a very interesting verse and a very fascinating approach to how to deal with those kinds of situations. Okay, any questions on that? And Janine, very good point. Where there is no resistance to, ang to reality, uh, then there's generally no anger. Uh, because like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what reality is going to do now. Um, you know, the, the, if, if a person were to lose their job, you know, you can have a, a huge reaction to that, and a lot of that's been going on in our society, uh, and it can be very painful, but the painfulness comes because we resist that possibility of reality. We look around and we see all kinds of people, you know, losing jobs, so, okay, if, you know, my number were picked to be in that, then I can have a big resistance reaction and be angry and upset, or I could say, okay, what's my next action from here? I mean, that is the only, back to the world of Michelet, that's the only practical thing I can do is figure out what is my practical next action. And then I go on from there. Yes, Janine, absolutely. We just have to be solution-oriented and look for alternatives. What do I do next? What is my next action? Okay, any other questions or comments on this? Okay, uh, I think we have time for one more verse. Uh, we are at Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 2. And the verse reads, The language of the wise corrects or fixes knowledge, and the mouth of the fool spouts foolishness. The language of the wise corrects or fixes knowledge, and the mouth of the fool spouts foolishness. Now, in this verse, the word fool is kasil, which means that he has some intelligence, uh, but the source of his wisdom comes from his emotions. Okay? So, what are the questions on this verse? The language of the wise fixes knowledge, and the mouth of the fool spouts foolishness. Okay, Charles, why language as opposed to words or ideas? Very good question. Excellent, excellent question. Why does he say the language of the wise as opposed to like the words of the wise in the first part? Um, okay, and Janine, does the tongue of the wise enhancing knowledge correlate with the principle of knowing how to be truly kind? Uh, that's a good question. Let's hold that on the table. Um, and Omar, you've said, so in Hebrew there are different levels of fool. Yes, it is my understanding that there are different words in the Hebrew that get translated into English as fool, uh, and that they mean different things. Uh, so Rabbi Moskowitz has sometimes uh, delineated or gone into, uh, into detail about that one. In this case, he did mentioning the kasil uh, specifically and the, the definition of that. So I have a couple of questions to add to the ones out on the table here. Um, 
uh, and Charles, you alluded to this, what, what's the language of the wise? And, and how does that fix or correct knowledge? What does that mean? Um, and isn't the second half pretty obvious? I mean, it says the mouth of the fool spouts foolishness. Well, what else did we expect? I mean, why would King Solomon tell us that? Um, and importantly, why does the second half say spouts instead of speaks? So Rabbi Moskowitz said like this, the spout is like it just pours out, bypassing the mind. So he said it's not the foolishness that he's getting at in this verse. It's that he's talking about the spouting. And then, in other words, it just blurts out like a spout coming out. You know, there's no, there's no filtering by the mind. There's no checking over or whatever. It's just completely bypassing the mind. Speech is the crystallization of thought. Language makes what's on your mind reality. It's not a reality until you actually say it. Okay, and also you could say that it's precision. When you say something, you're forced to be more precise than just an ethereal thought that's floating around in your head. Sometimes people will say, oh yeah, I, I understand that, whatever that is. And then you say, okay, good, explain it to me. Well, I, I, I don't really know quite how to put it in words, but I get it. It's like, no, they don't. Because if they can't put it into words, they don't understand it. Okay, so there's a certain level of precision that is needed there. So, as we mentioned, a Casil is a fool that is intelligent. In other words, he comes out with philosophies, but those philosophies are based on his emotions and his desires, so they are in fact foolish. He's not checking them over with critical questions. He's not looking for the errors. He's not understanding what's true and what isn't. He's just going with his emotions. Okay, so the verse seems to be contrasting what comes out of the mouth of the wise versus what comes out of the mouth of the fool. From the wise comes precision, that precise crystallization of an idea so that all questions are answered. And that gets to your question, Charles, of why language as opposed to words or ideas. It says the language of the wise corrects or fixes knowledge. It's the words that they use very precisely. They crystallize the idea so that it's perfectly clear. And they've answered all the questions around it, and it's, it's precise. Okay? They've really gotten to the issue of precision. By contrast, from the mouth of the fool comes spouting. It's kind of like it's whatever comes up, just like a cascade of junk. You know? uh, and, it, and it is, like it's coming out of his emotions and desires. So it's like comparing you know, a careful precision to a cascade of garbage. Uh, the, the contrast there, the, the wise really come up with the precise language while the fool is just going to spout out whatever's, you know, uh, coming up out of his, uh, his emotions and his desires. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, in that case, we will stop here for the evening.